and we are in Deuteronomy 34. Because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, would you please stand if you are able, ready to hear from the God who still speaks. Deuteronomy 34, beginning verse one. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, or Nebo, if you like, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. The Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev, and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as so are. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beit Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Great leaders, like all other humans, eventually die. On February 18th, 1546, I was reminded that the Protestant church lost one of its greatest heroes. A man named Philip Melanchthon, one of his nearest friends, was lecturing on the epistle of Romans when he was abruptly interrupted and the messenger who burst into the class informed Melanchthon of the devastating news that Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, had died in Eisleben. Upon returning to his class, Philip informed his students with these words. Alas, the charioteer of Israel has fallen. Perhaps you have lost someone deeply impactful and influential in your life 
Saying goodbye to a leader is challenging and to be honest, it can be disheartening. The one to whom you went for counsel on life's most difficult matters, the one you could trust, the one who knew you, perhaps even at times better than you knew yourself, now became inaccessible, out of reach, on account of death. As a result, the death of a great leader demands a kind of reorientation and reconstruction, as it were, of how life will go on in his or her absence. We have to develop new pathways, don't we, when we lose leaders who are dear to us. This is something close to what the Israelites were about to experience here at the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, the 120-year-old prophet, and the only leader this generation of Israelites had ever known was about to die. They didn't know what life was like without Moses leading them. As I hope you will see, there is much to learn from this text as God's people here at First Baptist Powell in the 21st century and as we wrap up our journey through the book of Deuteronomy, which is, to be honest, a bit bittersweet for me. We will approach this text in four stages. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Perhaps just log them away in your memory if you like. First, We will make note in the text of what I will call the unfulfilled desire of a great leader. The unfulfilled desire of a great leader. Second, we will look together at the death of a great leader. And this really is the title of the sermon because this is the epicenter of what we're going to talk about this Lord's Day morning, the death of a great leader. And then third, we will note together the spiritual descendant of a great leader. The spiritual descendant of a great leader. And then finally, after looking together at the unfulfilled desire of a great leader, the death of a great leader, the spiritual descendant of a great leader, we will conclude our time together with what I've called the distinction of a great leader the distinction of a great leader in the man named Moses. Let's begin by looking together at the unfulfilled desire of this great leader. Look with me, if you would, at the text, verses one through three. One through three. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh or Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Now, as many of you know, especially if you've been with us over the last number of weeks and months, there's a backstory to Moses being granted the privilege of now, at the end of his life, being able to be at the top of a mountain and look over this expanse of land that God had promised to his, 
his people. We were reminded actually last week that Moses had previously failed to honor the Lord and treat the Lord as holy. This is recorded in Numbers chapter 20. And because Moses had failed to honor the Lord as holy in the presence of the people of Israel, God had promised him back in Numbers 20 that he would not be able to inherit the land of Canaan. He, like Aaron, would die outside of the land. Aaron dies back in Numbers 20, the conclusion of Numbers 20. Moses now will die outside of the land. And so allowing Moses to see the land, though not enter the land, is is both a sign or a, a signal of God's judgment against sin, but it's also, I would suggest to you, a signal of God's kindness, of his mercy to give Moses this this last taste, as it were, of his faith and his hope becoming sight. Confident, of course, that the God who had led his people up to the boundary lines of the land of Canaan would continue to lead his people into the land of Canaan in Moses' absence. Earlier in this book, that is in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses informed us of a conversation he had had with the Lord about the possibility of going over into the land. He tells us this back in Deuteronomy chapter three, verses 23 and following, Moses wrote these words, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven and on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. And then verse 25, Moses says he requested of the Lord this. Please, let me go over. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me, Moses says, because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you, do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. So indeed, a signal of God's judgment against sin, but also a signal of God's mercy, even perhaps in response to Moses' request. Moses' desire, however, was to lead the people of Israel into the land. He makes that quite clear. Moses' desire was to go over into the land. His desire was not to look at the land from afar, and yet this desire was to be unfulfilled. This was an unfulfilled desire of a great leader, As our text goes on to read in verse four of Deuteronomy 34, and the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. That is to say, this is what I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It remains true today. And the Lord says, I've let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So that's the unfulfilled desire of a great leader. But secondly, I want you to notice the death of a great leader the death of a great leader. Look down with me at verse five at the text. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. The death 
of Moses in the land of Moab outside of the land of Canaan took place just as the Lord had promised. That's important to highlight in the text. And this is, of course, why I think the Spirit of God includes this in the text. It's not as if the Lord now is having to scramble for a plan B. He intended Moses to be the one who would lead Israel into the land of Canaan, but now death has overcome this great leader. What is God to do? No, this happened according to the word of the Lord. God had planned this. He had promised this. And God's word is trustworthy and true. So Moses' death, don't miss this, Moses' death in no way compromises or jeopardizes God's plan. It's a part of it. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it, during times of of loss and tragedy. To believe through the lens of faith that we serve a God who actually harnesses tragedy for his purposes in Christ and for our good. But as Christians, we know this supremely, don't we? Because it was through the murder, as it were, of the God-man that God has rescued us eternally from our sins. And so if God can use the death of Jesus Christ and actually overcome death by death on our behalf, how much more can he use the various other trials and tragedies that we face throughout our lives for our good and for his eternal purposes? And we find that right here in the text. This was part of God's revealed plan, namely the death of Moses. Now notice verse six, a challenging verse, perhaps. Odd, maybe surprising to some who read it for the first time, verse six, and he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beit Peor. No one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now there's a great deal of conversation and discussion and debate about the antecedent of the personal pronoun he. Who is he? Who's the he who buried Moses in the valley, in the land of Moab? Well, it appears to be a reference to the Lord. How about that? People are buried all the time. I would submit to you that few are buried by the Lord. Immediately, directly as it were, which is what this appears to be teaching. And this is consistent with what we go on to read in the verse, that same verse, verse six, namely that the burial site remained unknown to this day. Why is the burial site unknown to this day? Because God buried him. And that's all we're told. And... There are books written speculating about this. I don't find it terribly helpful to speculate where the Lord has chosen not to reveal. But there's actually even a book in the intertestamental period, and there's a tradition, intertestamental period being that time in between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There are letters and and books that are written speculating about what took place with regard to Moses' burial, all we know from the text is it appears that the Lord buried him and no one knew the site. And I think, by the way, I think this serves a purpose in the text, of course. May I suggest to you that Moses' unique burial appears to be a way of highlighting the uniquely intimate relationship 
Moses, the servant of the Lord, enjoyed with the Lord. You see, we're not to, we're not to think at the conclusion of Deuteronomy that Moses was a bad guy. Moses' reputation is not marred in that sense. In fact, look down at the text. Look at verse five. While Moses died outside of the land due to his distrust and disobedience, this doesn't irreparably mar his reputation as the servant of the Lord. Verse five, he is referred to as the servant of the Lord to the very end of his life. So Moses lives and Moses dies as the servant of the Lord. Additionally, I want you to notice how the spirit of God describes Moses in verse seven. And this is all tied in with the burial, the unique burial that Moses experienced that demonstrated and manifested his unique intimacy with the Lord. Notice verse seven, Moses was 120 years old when he died. I don't think anyone in this room is 120 years old. His eye was undimmed. Notice that. My eyes are dimming. I'm still in my 30s, barely, but I'm still in my 30s. His eye was undimmed. His vigor unabated. Now, maybe, by the way, his eye being undimmed, it may be a reference to his own eyes still being able to see with precision and clarity, but this is also a biblical way of describing someone's good looks. (laughs) He was a good-looking 120-year-old man. (laughs) How about that? Vigor unabated. This description speaks to Moses' spiritual vitality, you see. That's the point. The point is, those who walk in an intimate relationship with the Lord, even though they die, yet they live. That's the point. We won't run too far off the path here. As I've shared with you, this is our path, so we're just gonna be right here for just a moment. But there's a book written in the fourth century AD, so much later than Deuteronomy. Fourth century AD, it was written by a man named Athanasius. And uh, Athanasius wrote a book on another man, a monastic named Antony. And in his life of Antony, it's called, so it's a biographical work, in his life of Antony, he describes Antony at the end of his life as still having good teeth. Fascinating description. You think, what does that have to do with anything? Who cares about his teeth? What are you, a dentist, right? But no, that's not the point. He, He describes him as his vigor being unabated. That is to say, Antony walked in such a close relationship with the Lord that even in death, he was alive that death couldn't rob him of spiritual vitality. That's the point. That's what's happening in the text, I believe. And that's precisely what's being communicated concerning Moses. So we don't, we don't conclude Deuteronomy with Moses, this awful leader, as we're gonna see in just a moment. You know, a biblical example of this is Caleb. Caleb in Joshua 14, verse 11, I love it. Caleb is 85 years old. No, that's a young man compared to Moses. From my perspective, that's not exactly a young man. 85 years old, Caleb is, in Joshua 14, 11. And here's what Caleb says 
And by the way, he reminds me of, of some in our congregation. I won't tell you who, but he does. The kind of vigor that Caleb shows here. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me 40 years ago. I'm as strong as at 85 as I was at 45. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. And all God's men said, amen, right? (laughs) That's Caleb. But again, I think that captures a similar point. These things point us to something deeper than physical health, temporary health. They they point us to spiritual vitality. Caleb is exemplary in scripture as one who trusts the Lord when no one else is trusting the Lord. So it is with Moses. And notice Israel's response to Moses' death in verse eight. So look down at verse eight with me. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. And then notice, then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And it's fascinating, the next two words. And Joshua appears to move on abruptly at that point. On the one hand, Israel grieves the loss of their great leader for 30 days. This is, is, by the way, uh, the grieving period that was also extended to Aaron in Numbers 20, verse 29. 30 days of grieving and mourning the loss of of this great leader. On the other hand, when the days of mourning were concluded, Israel is summoned to continue trusting the God who led his people through Moses, but would now lead his people without Moses. They serve the same God. And so there's this balance and perhaps even this tension that we experience in a fallen world. On the one hand of being able to mourn the loss of great men and women in the Lord. And on the other hand, to be able to move on in faith and hope with tenacity in Christ. And we find that tension right here in the text. Perhaps, perhaps even a relevant observation for us as 21st century evangelical Christians would be to note that that grieving in the face of death is an appropriate Christian response. They grieve for 30 days. Doubtless because Moses was indeed a great leader, but grief and, and mourning and lamentation were a part of the rhythm that God's people have experienced since Genesis 3. Paul says that we do not mourn as those who have no hope, but he never says we do not mourn. And and I fear as evangelicals at times that we're just terrified to be sad. We're terrified to be grieved. And to be honest with you, I mean, this is, these are moments when I'm, when I'm suffering from grief or anguish or, or pain or, or loss. It's, it's in those moments when I just can't stand the nauseating knockoff of Christianity that has no category for it. I can't stand in those moments for someone to say to me, put on a happy face. I want to offer them a righteous right hook or something along those lines. Spiritually speaking, of course. No grief is a part of human existence in between the fall and the resurrection. 
And indeed, we don't grieve as people who have no hope. We grieve as people with hope, but we find that in the text as well. They grieve for 30 days and then they move on in faith and hope in the God who remains faithful to them. I think passages like Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 are informative for evangelicals today personally. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living, don't miss this, the living will lay it to heart. Those who are truly alive understand that death is real and those who are truly alive in Christ are able to face death, even grief and mourning and loss and lamentation in the context of Christian hope. So death is a real enemy. Should not be celebrated. Paul calls death the final enemy to be defeated in 1 Corinthians 15. And we should refer to it as an enemy. When someone dies, we are reminded of the havoc our sin has wreaked on us and on God's good world. While there is coming a day, indeed, when sin and death will finally be abolished from God's world, that day is not yet. And so we continue to journey together with grief and hope, God's people. That's a part of human existence. And we find it right here in the text in light of the death of this great leader, Moses. Well, in addition to the unfulfilled desire of a great leader and the death of a great leader, we find the spiritual descendant of a great leader. And this will be brief. One verse, verse nine. Look down at the text with me at verse nine, where the spirit accents the role of Joshua. And Joshua just appears for a moment because he's just about to get an entire book. So here he gives a verse. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So after the 30-day period of grieving ended, we are reminded that the mantle was passed from Moses to Joshua. Now, pay close attention to how Joshua's leadership is described because I think we have a kind of model here for what it means to be a Christian leader, what it means to be a spiritual descendant of a great leader. Notice that Joshua is full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. In other words, there was this continuation of of office and role and function that passed from Moses to Joshua. There was continuity between the two. Secondly, we find in verse 9b that the people of Israel, and this is really staggering at the conclusion of Deuteronomy, The people of Israel obeyed him. Now this is where the reader stops and is flabbergasted. The people of Israel obeyed him. And then as I've I've shared, I had a conversation with someone recently, it may have been in our community group, I don't don't remember exactly, but we had the conversation, Joshua, the the book of Joshua, go on and tell the story. That while indeed God's promises are not finally and ultimately fulfilled in the book of Joshua, they are fulfilled in part. And what you find in the book of Joshua is you find the people of Israel actually described as obedient. Yeah. It's a nice change, isn't it? It's short-lived. But it's a nice change. 
But notice that the people of Israel, verse nine, part B again, Deuteronomy 34, the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. That's massive. You know what Joshua was not doing? Joshua didn't come on the scene and say, you know what? Everything in the past, forget about it. We're gonna be novel and cutting edge and creative and we're gonna change it all up. It's not what Joshua does. What does Joshua do? The same thing Moses has been doing for 40 years. What message does Joshua preach? The same message Moses preached for 40 years. That's Christian leadership. That is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian leader. See, a Christian leader is not someone intrigued by the novel or the neoteric or the sensational. Those things come and go. The kind of leadership that is, this kind of charlatan leadership that produces brief movements instead of providing lasting monuments to God's grace. We have far too many examples of this. A Christian leader is someone who is committed, and this is the words actually of, these are the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6, verse 16. A Christian leader is someone who is committed to the ancient paths where the good way is. The ancient paths where the good way is. By the way, that's not to say we aren't to use creativity. That's not to say we aren't to consider various methods. We aren't to evaluate these methods. But fundamentally, fundamentally, you know what a pastor doesn't have to do? He doesn't have to go figure out what he's going to preach. He doesn't have to go figure out what he's going to say, as it were. He's been given the abiding word of God, and it's quite simple. I find it, I find it to be so refreshing and freeing. Now, you know, look, I, I have to pick what book I'm in from time to time, not, all, not consistently. It's rarely that actually has to, that comes around. But I pick a book, which I'm in the midst of right now, and sometimes we'll preach, you know, a short series in between, but, but it really is simple. Walk in the ancient paths where the good way is. Preach my word. Preach the same message the church has been preaching for 2,000 years. So in some sense, you know, even as a church, by the way, this boy, we could really get off here. As a church, in some sense, are we going to do some things differently? Sure, yes. But we're talking here about the center, about what's fundamental. So in another more profound sense, when someone says, you know, if someone were to ask me, what are you, what are you going to do at First Baptist Powell as a senior pastor? I really want to say to him, what's, what's been done there for decades? what was done long before I came on the scene and what will hopefully be done after I'm gone. I just want to be a part of a line of faithfulness as a monument to God's grace in Christ. Well, that's Joshua. That's what he's interested in. And that's what he commits himself to. Finally, I want you to look with me at verses 10 through 12 where we discover the distinction of a great leader. 
the distinction of a great leader. And this for me is where the winds of heaven fill my sails. Verses 10 through 12, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Notice, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I said, we're calling this the distinction of a great leader. And I want to point out to you, there are a few ways Moses is distinguished from every other prophet in Israel, okay? A few ways Moses is distinguished from all other prophets in Israel. First, I want you to notice that Moses is one, quote, whom the Lord knew face to face. And this is, this is actually said in a similar way in a couple of other places, Exodus 33, verse 11, and Numbers 12, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, with Moses, I speak face to face. Or with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, as it were. The idea is it's the two of us and I speak directly to him in a way that I do not speak to other people, including other prophets. Because God says, with other prophets, in Numbers 12, with other prophets, I speak in visions, dreams various other media that I've chosen, but not so with Moses. With Moses, I speak to him directly. Astounding. So the degree of intimacy Moses enjoyed with the Lord separated him, distinguished him from all other leaders throughout Israel's history. Second, I want you to notice And Moses was distinguished on account of the miraculous works he performed or the miraculous works the Lord performed through Moses. Verse 11 says, there was none like him, that is Moses, for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. No one had participated and been an instrument in the Lord's hand to produce the number of signs And the kind of rescue God had granted the people of Israel through Moses out of Egypt. This dwarfed any other comparison. And then third, and the third one really is a kind of piggybacking on the second one. Third, Moses is set apart from other prophets in Israel because of the great deeds Moses performed in the sight of Israel as verse 12 indicates. So not only was Moses distinguished through the deeds he performed in Egypt as God was rescuing the people of Israel out of Egypt, but also Moses continued to perform these mighty deeds in the sight of Israel throughout their wilderness journey. And so in this way, Moses, or in these ways, Moses was distinct. He was set apart. He was unique. This truly was a great leader. However, you must get this to understand Deuteronomy. If you conclude Deuteronomy with the thought, Moses was amazing, and that's the end of the story, you've missed the purpose of the book. While there was none like Moses, 
throughout all Israel. None. Not even he could finally be the leader God's people needed. That's the point. There was no one like this man with whom the Lord spoke face to face, mouth to mouth. Not in visions, not in dreams. There was no one like this man through whom the Lord performed the mighty acts of salvation of his people, for his people, out of Egypt. The various plagues on Pharaoh, this superpower, and his army. Climaxing, as it were, in the Red Sea when God drowned the Egyptian army. There was no one like this man who performed all the mighty acts of vindication and validation of the Lord's presence throughout the wilderness wanderings for the people of Israel. There was no one like Moses, the great leader, and yet he wasn't enough. He died outside of the land. So Deuteronomy wraps up with tension. While there was none like Moses, he was insufficient. He's the best humanity has to offer. And he failed. If the faithfulness of Moses was insufficient to obtain the fulfillment of God's promises, then who who is sufficient for these things? So Moses dies on the mountain. But as the story of scripture unfolds, the next time we find Moses is also on a mountain. In Matthew 17, Mark 9, where Moses, along with Elijah, are bearing witness to one who is greater than Moses, to Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy is a deposit in a broader story in God's mercy. Moses, Moses was, quote, the servant of the Lord, as Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 indicates. He was the servant of the Lord in life. He was the servant of the Lord in death. However, Christ is not merely the servant of the Lord, but is the Son of God incarnate. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, or the first part of verse 6. Hebrews 3, 5 to 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Verse six, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Here's what I think is happening as Deuteronomy wraps up, and there are a number of ways we could say this. There really are, and it's really a playground in which to enjoy ourselves in the text of Scripture. The inadequacy of Moses, the servant of God, at the conclusion of Deuteronomy, bears witness to the sufficiency of Jesus, the Son of God. That's what's happening. Moses' inadequacy and insufficiency 
screams the sufficiency of one who was to come after Moses and causes us to wait in eager anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. And Christ indeed has done what Moses could never do. Christ has, through his incarnation and life and death and resurrection and promised future return, he has redeemed a people for his own possession. And there is nothing that could jeopardize their future. Christ didn't have to die as it were outside of the land so that someone else could come. Christ actually goes outside the camp to die and then conquers death through resurrection and re-enters the camp to rescue his people. That's where Deuteronomy leads us. And so if you're reading Deuteronomy, if you're reading Deuteronomy primarily, fundamentally, ultimately about a man named Moses and about an ancient people called Israel, you're missing the final chapter that puts it all together. You're missing the one about whom Deuteronomy was written. Moreover, if you're here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus Christ, you've not come to treasure Christ, you've not placed your faith and given your surrender to Jesus Christ, you've not given your life to Christ as the only sufficient leader for you, I would plead with you to do that even this morning. Listen, leaders will come and they will go. You will have, potentially, you may have a pastor that you trust and you love and praise God for such men. They will be temporary and they will be insufficient. They will fail. I happen to know one really well. Political leaders. Political leaders will make promises that will leave you wondering if they will be able to fix all of your problems. And they will come into office and they will leave office and problems will continue. Sometimes because of them, sometimes in spite of them. Why? Because they are insufficient for what you need as a leader. Parents, for some of you, your mom, your dad, they're tremendous and you have exemplary parents who have raised you in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Not everyone has that privilege, but some do. Those parents, as you've grown older, likely have failed you. You're able to reflect now on many of the inadequacies and deficiencies of your parents, even, even for those of us who've had the privilege of being loved well by a mom or a dad or both. Finally, finally, they are insufficient as our leaders. And it goes on and on and on. Why? Because the insufficiency of every human leader bears testimony to the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So don't leave here without knowing Christ and following Christ. And if you'd like to talk more about this, then we would love to visit with you. Would love to. And so if you make your way out this morning and take a left, I mentioned that room called the crossroads out there on the right-hand side. You can go in there and talk with an elder 
You can grab me after the service. You can even grab someone else in the room, perhaps, who knows the Lord. They would love to visit with you, but let us know somehow so we can come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we seek to honor this, finally, finally, this sufficient leader. Well, there is, I want to just mention this to you in closing because it just, it blessed my socks off. I'm not sure what it means to have your socks blessed off, but it's really remarkable. And there I am, the socks are over there. There is a kind super, superintendence of the Lord exercised in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. I just want to point you to this as we close. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. Notice the language, will you please? There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. The language here is figurative, but it's the exact same language the New Testament authors use to talk about something bodily. It's actually the same language the New Testament authors will use to describe the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so God has kindly superintended this in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. At that time, no prophet had yet been raised like Moses. So Deuteronomy concludes waiting for the rising of a prophet like Moses, actually. Christ, the prophet greater than Moses, has risen for the salvation of sinners. And so... With that, Deuteronomy concludes, a great leader dies, but a greater leader has come, church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, the privilege of seeing Christ in his glory through the pages of scripture. I pray, I pray, oh God, that we would proclaim him Christ Jesus, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. We praise you that someone greater than Moses has come, the God-man, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful this morning to know him and be known by him. We're thankful to finally have received the sufficient leader we really needed all along. And so Christ Jesus, we pray. Lead us. Lead us throughout this life. Lead us in death. Lead us into resurrection glory when you return. We pray this with confidence in you and eager anticipation of your return. In your name and for your sake and all God's people said, amen.